0: The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shamong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org.
1: Dharma incomparable profound minutely subtle, pervading the entire universe, revealing right here, right now, is rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. We can see it, we can listen to it, we can express and know it. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. <coughs> Master Carpenter Chang set out to carve a piece of wood into a large horse. When the horse was completed, all those who looked at it were amazed, thinking that at any moment it would burst to life and run off. Surely, they thought, this must be the handiwork of the gods themselves. When the Prince of Lu saw the horse, he asked, What is the secret of your art? What secret, Chiang replied, I am but a simple craftsman. However, there is one thing, before I set about carving, I guard against anything that would diminish my vital force. I keep all distractions at a distance and my mind becomes very still. After three days in this state, I lose all thought of reward or personal benefit. After five days, I no longer care about praise or blame or of what it takes to make a good or bad carving. After seven days, I lose all notion that these are my hands and this body belongs to me. I don't even know why I am making the horse or for whom. My skill is focused on but one thing. All disturbance of the outer world is gone. It is only then I enter the forest in search of the right tree. I find one of exquisite form. Seeing the horse captured within the folds of the grain, struggling to get out, I set my hand to the chisel so as to free it. If this is not your approach, what will you accomplish? Why keep everyone up at night with the banging of your chisel? You see, it is very simple. I just bring my own nature into harmony with that of the wood. Then I begin. Whatever is not in harmony, I carve away. What people suspect is the work of some supernatural force is no more than this. Good evening. Good evening. 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 So, for most of us, love is or exists as a concept, a sentimental or romantic notion or feeling or emotion that we may have on occasion, given the right circumstance, experience in that given moment. Last night when I was giving a talk in Mount Laurel, I was asked about a particular therapy and my opinion about its benefits, and my comment was that I found that it was beneficial, but it did not go far enough. For most of us, our concept of love, most certainly, has been beneficial, but does not go far enough. And So tonight I want to invite you to join me in exploring the Buddha Dharma's view of love as something more than or even other than some sentimental or romantic notion or just a feeling or emotion that we have, again, when the conditions are just right for that to happen. In that partial understanding of love, in that limited understanding of love, we are most certainly limited to conditions that generate the experience for us. And this is why so many people so many times talk about love as something that happens to them, or something they feel for someone. And when we understand love from, again, the Buddhist point of view, when we understand Dharma pervading the entire universe, revealing right here, right now, we can and should substitute the term Dharma for love. Love pervades the entire universe revealing right here, right now, there is nowhere we can go, there is no situation required or condition required to know it. Yet, as the opening of the Dharma's Dharani says, it is rarely experienced by so many people. And again, if you listen to people's conversations as I have over the past 41 years on the matter of love, they talk about it as a sporadic or occasional experience. Perhaps it is always directed towards someone they know, someone they care about. Perhaps it is about something they enjoy doing. Or, again, a particular experience, whereby the conditions in that moment and in that experience allow for or generated the experience of love. But the Buddhist point of view of love is something entirely different. It is again best to begin by the Dharani's words, love is everywhere. It pervades the entire universe. It is revealing itself to us here and now. So the question we're going to explore tonight is is if that is so, and I am convinced it is so. And the Buddha Dharma teaches that that is so, then why does it seem to always be a kind of limited experience or a conditional experience for most people? And why is it so important to talk about it? It is so important to talk about it, not for the reasons, again, that our sentimental and romantic notions of love provide us. For example, again, often when we talk about love, we talk about it from that place some sentimentality or some romantic experience we have for another. And often we talk about those sentimental and romantic experiences as something very private, something very personal, as if my experience of love is so uniquely different from everyone else's that I need to protect it and guard it in a container somewhere in my house or in my heart. Yet, the Buddhist point of view is that love is the very essence of the universe. That love is a field of energy, a force that runs through everything, that is the source of everything, and that is the sustaining force for everything. Synonymous with those words, with what I just said, is the fundamental teaching in Buddhism on which everything stands. And that is the teaching of what Chungpa Rinpoche called basic goodness. From the Buddhist point of view, each and every one of us and everything that exists in the universe exists having a basic goodness, sometimes referred to as Buddha nature, or our true nature, our original nature, before it became polluted or contaminated, by conditional experiences. So in other words, each of us are born with a fundamental basic goodness we call Buddha nature. We are enlightened beings. And that enlightenment we speak of tonight is we are the very stuff of love. That the universe is the very stuff of love. And that love pervades the entire universe running through everything and sustains everything. And the importance of knowing it in this way is directly connected to the cause of suffering and the solution for our suffering. Once again, we need to understand that Buddhism teaches that pain in life is different than suffering. Pain is inevitable. You cannot have a body, and as you get older, if you haven't already began to recognize it, you will, that it comes along with having a body. But the suffering that the Buddha was exclusively interested in, understanding through and through, why do we suffer, what is its cause, and is there cessation from suffering? This, we Buddha say, is optional. That all suffering is a conditional experience, that is to say, We suffer because certain conditions are either present, causing that suffering, or certain conditions are absent, causing that suffering. Certain conditions that the Buddha refers to in the Second Noble Truth when he says, ignorance is a cause of suffering. It is our ignorance of who we truly are, or our true nature, And what what follows that cause, that is to say, because we live lives oppositional to who we truly are and that those lives are occupied with choices and decisions and opinions and beliefs that have absolutely nothing to do with the reality referred to as Dharma, we suffer. The cause of our suffering is ignorance of our true nature which generates lifestyles and beliefs and points of views that cause or create decisions and choices and reactions and responses to life circumstances that we experience at the level of suffering. If who we truly are is love, this force that pervades the entire universe and runs through everything, this force that brings about real change and healing and renewal, which we experience as this impermanence in the universe, this constant evolving in the universe, if that is who and what we are, then the teaching is that when we live and act outside of that basic goodness, suffering will compound. Our suffering is not a function of the specific circumstances or situations we often identify with as the cause of our suffering. Our suffering is at all times, in those circumstances and apart from those circumstances, a function of not coming from what, again, Tronkov Rinpoche referred to as our basic goodness. We do not live lives that express our basic goodness. We do not live lives from our true nature. We live lives, we live lifestyles, we make choices and opinions, and we set up goals in our life, in our relationships, whether they be in our personal relationships, our family relationships, our career relationships, our friendships, our social and cultural relationships, the goals that we often set up as the principles for our life, the guiding factors of our life, are out of harmony with our true nature. Our contentment, which is the term used in Zen for real happiness, true joy, and sustainable happiness, is a function, if you were listening to the story of Master Ching, he says, everything that is out of harmony, with my true nature, with the true nature of the carving, is cut away. Our happiness is a function of carving a life out for ourselves that is in harmony with our true nature. The evidence of which is, for example, often demonstrated with the notion of you take a bird and you put it in water, it's not going to thrive. You take a fish and you throw it into the air, it's not going to thrive. In order for the bird to thrive, it needs to be able to fly. In order for the fish to thrive, it needs to be in water. Likewise, in order for Buddhas to thrive, we need to be functioning from our basic goodness at all times. So. Often the experience we have when we talk about being unhappy, being dissatisfied, being discontented. Another example of what I mean is something I wrote on the social medias this past week when I said, too often we mistake our dissatisfaction with the lack of pleasure when it is really the lack of character. And by character for this evening's conversation, it has to do with, again, living in harmony with our design purpose and design function. And these two terms are essential in our effort to understand uh, the teaching tonight. You and I are the stuff of love. From the Buddhist point of view, we are all born loving, kind, and compassionate. We are born with the knowledge and the wisdom of interconnectedness and interdependency. The evidence of which is as it was for me at the birth of my own child, when I witnessed her not only reach out to connect with me, but when I placed her in the arms of her mother, how she moved into her bosom to connect with her. We are designed for relationship. We are designed to act at our peak best, interconnected, interdependent in each other's lives. And we are designed to always act until we become conditionally polluted or contaminated. We are designed to always act for the benefit of that connection. Or another way of saying it, for the benefit of others. It is our true nature to care about others. It is our true nature to care about suffering. We are designed that way. Therefore it goes from the Buddhist teaching that when we act contrary to that reality, to that nature, suffering not only follows but will compound. So in an effort to really make this evening's topic work for us, one of the things we need to start taking a look at is the absolute necessity for changing our lifestyle point of views. And by that I mean, we need to start to think more importantly about what is in harmony with our true nature when we talk about interacting in the world. Buddhism, as it has come to be known in the modern times, because it wasn't called that in the time of the Buddha, of course, but the Buddha Dharma, as it was referred to, which meant the way or the teachings of the enlightened ones the enlightened person realizes and appreciates that his or her his or her meaning and purpose for their existence is to be a benefit to others is to live our lives as a benefit to others now the evidence of what i'm talking about is found in this question that I want you to ponder for a moment. When are you really at your most happiest? When are you really most contented with your life? What are those moments in your life that have always brought you joy? And when you take a look at that question, if you are willing to be honest enough, you know very well that it is when we are interacting with others in a loving, kind, respectful, appreciative way. We are at our best when we are operating from a place of our basic goodness. And we are at our worst, by that I mean we suffer and the cause of our suffering, in whatever situation you want to suggest, I can show you is a function of operating outside our design purpose and our design function. We were designed to be lovers in the world and to express and manifest that basic goodness in everything. And when we are operating from our basic goodness, there is a natural sense of well-being. When we are operating from a place of I love you for someone, there is a joy, as you know, that is present and that is evident, that is natural. It doesn't require any particular conditions. It doesn't require any particular situation. When we are coming from a place of bringing our basic goodness to the world, manifesting that in the world, in whatever it is we're doing. For example, again, what often gets in the way of fully appreciating this tonight may be, again, your sentimental and romantic notion of love. For example, at the workplace, how do I manifest my basic goodness? I operate in the workplace from a place of benefiting the workplace, benefiting my fellow employees, benefiting the company I'm working for. Now, if I don't want to benefit the company I'm working for, I need to get another job, you're But if I'm going to work for that company, I manifest my basic goodness with what is often referred to, or I at least refer to, as integrity. I bring an integrity to the workplace. It is something that my grandfather talked about, but he called it having pride for what you do, being proud of what you do, you see. So in the workplace, there's no need for some sentimental romantic notion. You don't need to love the boss. But you do need to love what you do. And you do need to bring that pride to the workplace. And when we do, we're manifesting that basic goodness. And when we go to bed at night, you know, I often say to people, no matter what happens in the course of my day, when my head hits the pillow, I go right to sleep. And I'm usually not up until it's time to get up for morning meditation, unless my dogs wake me up, or my daughter, when she's home with me, wakes me up or some sound outside. But most of the time I sleep straight through the night, my head, and the reason that happens for me, I believe, is because, again, when we are practicing, as it is sometimes referred to as a Buddhist, or when we are living our life from that place of basic goodness, when you go to bed at night, it doesn't matter what other people, and I want to talk about that in a moment too, it doesn't matter what other people think of you, it doesn't matter whether other people like you, doesn't matter what their opinions may be of you. You know who you are, and you know what you've done in the course of the day. One of my uh, favorite movies that I saw recently with Tom Hanks had that whole message in it at the end of the movie. And if you haven't seen it, it's on uh, HBO now, I think, or Comcast or whatever. I saw it at the movie theater. It's a fabulous movie. The uh, Bridges, anyone help me? Bridges 5, yes. And uh, if, it's a true story about the man they sent over to help Gary Powers uh, be released by the Soviets when he was captured. And Powers was all concerned uh, flying back from uh, the Soviet Union. He's in a military aircraft with Tom Hanks, and uh, the other military people in the aircraft were kind of like distancing themselves from Powers because they mm-hmm. thought the fact that he didn't kill himself, which is what he was trained to do, rather than be captured, he must have given the Soviets information. <laughs> so Powers is sitting there next to the character played by Tom Hanks and, he, and he, you know, he looks over to Tom Hanks and he said, I didn't tell them anything you know. And Hanks' response is this powerful statement. He said, it doesn't matter. You know what you did. It doesn't matter. And when we are operating from our place of basic goodness, if you will, that is our experience from day to day. And I talk about that because I was commenting with Maisie earlier, the talk I gave in Mount Laurel last night was before a group of women aging anywhere from like 78 to almost 90 years old. And I I was stopped for a moment, not necessarily surprised, little surprised, but definitely it caught my attention that even at that age these women were still dealing with feelings of blame and shame and guilt and we and I talked at great length about that with them but the fact that our experience is so much dominated even by that age for some people by concern of blame and shame and guilt and not worth and not did it right and not good enough is evident that we need a real transformation in understanding this fundamental teaching of Buddhism about basic goodness. The Buddha said there is a cause for suffering. I say to you that the cause for suffering is ignorance of who we truly are, who we truly are possesses a basic goodness, and we call that in Buddhism Buddha nature. And all of Buddhist training, practice, spirituality—whatever metaphor works for you—is exclusively focused on the realization of our true nature. Everything. It is a single issue matter for Buddhists. You know They're saying. It is the singular issue of spirituality, because it is understood that if and when we realize who we truly are, that is to say, we have that experience of our own basic goodness, and then we take that experience of what is already so. Remember in Master in Master Chang's uh, story here, he says to uh, Prince of Lu, he says to him, Uh, I go and I look for a, a tree of exquisite form, one that I see the horse already trying to come out. When you read any of the writings on Michelangelo and his work with David, he makes the same reference. He talks about going into the quarry to find that one piece of granite in which he sees David. And all he does, he says, is chip away all the stone that is preventing David from manifesting. Both of these examples are metaphors for, again, where Buddhism comes from, that is to say, the practice is founded on and is launched from this conviction that we are already enlightened, we already possess all the love in the universe we are ever going to know, and that that is always so for us as i talked to the group of catholic and jewish women last night at this uh, center i said to them you never fall from grace there is no such thing it doesn't change the hell or the suffering that you may experience which you know i was again the other thing that amazed me in our dialogue we spent a good two and a half hours together they wanted to focus on their sins and I wanted to focus on their Buddha nature. So uh, uh, I said to him, just look at that for yourself. And you wonder why, and you you ask the question, is the world ever going to change? No. The world is never going to change until you change. Until you change the focus of your attention in life, and until you come from that place of your basic goodness. Now one of the problems of our conditioned self, that is, We are born this way. We are born as Buddhas, the Buddha taught. And then somewhere along the line, as you have heard me often talk about it, therapists talk about the formation years anywhere between one and four or one and seven. So let's take it, let's narrow it down to one and seven, if you will. So between the years of one and seven, we begin to learn about our culture and our society through various different vehicles, various different instruments, our parents, teachers, uh, our friends, our si- you know, siblings, our peers, and, and all of that. And those experiences and teachings begin to literally reform and reshape our knowledge of ourself. When they say children are like sponges, they mean it. So we take on the opinions, the beliefs, and the ideas of all of these various different sources... And we do that long enough, it takes only seven years, let's say, for it to happen, that we literally forget who we really are. <coughs> and, the, and the key experience that changes all of that for us is the very thing I mentioned a moment ago. Somewhere in that period, someone, maybe very innocently, maybe not, it's individual, someone says to us, maybe, you're bad or someone says to us maybe, you've got to be better, or someone says to us what we've all heard in one form or another as children. And this is, I think that these are the, this is, if there's anything we can say or do that is like reprehensible, it's this line we've all heard in one way or the other. If you want people to like you, you have to because the moment we heard that message, the moment we were convinced that that message was valid and true, from that moment on, we went in search of not who we are, but who we could be to placate the world, you're saying. And that was the origin. So, you know, as I was saying, one of my uh, Catholic uh, uh, audience, asked me, well, what about original sin? I said, well, we understand it this way. Original sin begins on that day you forget who you are and go in search of who you can be because we are always in that search playing various different roles. We are always in the role of the imposter. We are always in the role of someone in a disguise and so forth. So, The path to cessation from our suffering is not about gaining more, it is not about becoming better, and it's certainly not about becoming different. It is about realizing your own basic goodness and then taking that realization, that experience of yourself, to a level of manifesting it in every moment of your life. Bringing loving kindness, bringing compassion, bringing forgiveness. Now, how do you do that? Again, if we insist on remaining stuck in the sentimental and romantic notion of love, this will be much more difficult. We need to operate from a place of complete trust. And that's the next thing I want to say. One of the effects of that conditioning and years and years and years of operating from that conditioning of more, better, and different is we don't trust ourselves. We don't trust our basic goodness. I, I wish I had a camera on that conversation last night in a room full of 30 women and one man. I wish I had a camera to show you how insisting they were, how they insisted. <clears throat> We are sinners. We are not worthy. We do not merit. What about that, you saying? And I asked him repeatedly and over and over again to step back and look at how so rooted we were. Now, again, in the Buddhist teachings, one of the processes we're going to hopefully get to tonight before you leave is a meditation process whereby you affirm the opposite. If you are born with basic goodness, and you are, the Buddha also taught that each of us merit love. We merit happiness. We merit respect. We merit compassion. Now before ego sets in on you with that stuff, you need to also know this. That's only true when this is also true. So does he. And so does she, you see. It's not like I merit, it's like all beings possess Buddha nature. All beings are born with basic goodness, therefore, therefore all beings merit love and respect and compassion and forgiveness. Now, the way you got to ignorance, if you will, is to daily invest your mind, your body, your, your emotions, and your opinions into by acting as the opposite was true. That's how you got to your ignorance and how that ignorance has become embedded in you, embedded in all of us, to where even 86 to 90-year-old women still are struggling with it, if you will. So how do you suppose you change that? The same way. And this is where trust, as it is understood from the Buddhist perspective, comes in. Trust from the Buddhist perspective is what I often call Nike Buddhism. We may not feel that we are, we may not feel Love, but we act it. We act from that place unconditionally, whether we feel it or we don't. Whether we're talking about love towards ourselves or love towards the others, that rule applies. Love towards ourselves is that we may not feel like eating right, which benefits us and strengthens us and nurtures us to meet the (laughs) daily tasks, you know, in a Zen monastery where monks live together, one of the key officers of the monastery is a person referred to as the tenzo, and the tenzo looks like a cook, because that's the guy who is always preparing the meals for the monastery. But in in uh, Japanese monasteries, for example, the tenzo is someone who the roshi recognizes as developing spiritually to such a way that he sees his task of cooking as a spiritual practice rather than just putting a meal together. And so the ancient Zen master Dogen, uh, when he was forming and structuring the uh, Japanese schools of Soto Buddhism, uh, wrote an entire spiritual document to the cook And it was based on, again, these spiritual principles. And among the principles, uh, in addition to what we're talking about, is that the cook's job is to create a meal that not only nurtures the body, but the mind and the heart as well. The role of the Tenzo is to support the monks to be able to practice all the way to achieving the singular objective and goal, which is awakening to their own true Buddha nature. So when we talk about loving ourselves, the first task involved has to do with taking care of our bodies. It has to do with eating right, resting, exercising, all the stuff you hear about regularly. Now, again, if you were listening a few moments ago, if you do that from a strictly sentimental or emotional uh, place, that attempt will always be conditional. That's where you say, well I'm going to go to the gym today and then an hour later you say, well I don't have time to go to the gym. No, you go to the gym. That's how you do it. Or you say, well I know that if I eat this uh, Oreo cookie, which was my downfall well, for many years, I can only eat one. No, you can't only eat one. In fact, we know now, recently they just came out with studies that they cook that stuff so that you can't only eat one. So when they when they when Lay's advertise you can't you can't eat one, they knew it. It wasn't just a marketing tool. They knew it. They put stuff in there to make sure that you couldn't only eat one. We know that now. But besides that, as as the fact, again, we need to step off of this conditional way of living our lives. If I feel like it, I do it. We need to step off of that and we need to approach living life from a place of integrity. And integrity means, again, being true to my true nature and operating from a place of absolute. If my yes must be yes and my no must be no, end of discussion. Mm -hmm. Because that's how we got to our place of ignorance, as children. We absolutely trust the teachings that people gave us. So we absolutely followed and believed those teachings and practiced those teachings almost what, again, we might say religiously in our life. There was never any question. That's what my father said and that's what his father said. That's the way my mother did it and what, the way her mother did it. We lived and practiced that way. We need to live and practice that way in order to transform that ignorance. So I say to you, you were born with basic goodness. I said that to the group I was talking to last night and they wanted me to know how wrong I was. They wanted me to know that they were born with original sin and that they needed to be redeemed and all of that. And so I say to you, you were born with basic goodness and if you ask me to show me the evidence, I don't have it. I can talk to you about how I observed it in my daughter from birth up to now where she's beginning to forget it. I can talk to you about that. But outside of that, I don't have the evidence. So you gotta trust me. But more importantly, you gotta trust you. Because it doesn't matter to me if you trust me. I trust me. And that's really all that matters. What matters is that you trust you. And Tronco Riboshe talked about this in his lifetime. He said, we don't trust our basic goodness, and that is why we behave the way we are. We think we have to be tough. We think we have to feel that way. We think we have to do those things. No, we don't. We always have a choice. There is a space that you become familiar with in meditation training. And again, meditation training. There is a space between stimulus, response, It's a very small space, but it exists. There's a space between that moment someone says or does something that hurts you and your reaction. When you train in meditation, when you train in mindfulness, when you train in keeping the precepts, living a moral and ethical life, when you train in that, because you must train in it after years and years of taking it for granted, You become really familiar with that space. You have to become really familiar with that space because it's only in that space you get the choice to react differently. When it's just stimulus response, stimulus response, stimulus response, you know what you are? You're a machine. That's all you are. And when they say to you, I just know the right buttons to push on you. You'll always be that way. They're right. They're right. But we are not the stimulus, and we are not the response. We are the space between stimulus response. This is where God exists. This is where Buddha nature exists. And only by becoming familiar with that space, and again, when we apply the training that comes from meditation training, and we apply the principles and teachings of mindfulness, and learning to live mindful, of my experience when the stimulus is coming at me, then we can train in making that choice to always come from basic goodness. And even if I mess up, coming from basic goodness is being aware that I've messed up, being aware that I failed in maybe being kind, and then just going back and cleaning up that mess. Having as my singular intention to always manifest who I really am in every moment and who is that what is that loving and kindness and compassion consideration and respect not only towards myself but to all the many beings because again remember the yin is i merit the yang is so does everyone else any questions <coughs> Hi, kiddo.
2: Um,
1: the Buddha then was teaching
2: original blessing. Not original sin. Yes. Um, there's a you know, theologian, Matthew Fox, mm-hmm. that feels that that's
1: what... An old, old drinking buddy of mine. Is he really? <laughs> yeah. uh, he's, yeah. now, he's now, now
2: a priest mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anybody he was asked to leave because he believes that that's what causes so much pain in Western religion
1: is this idea of religion, so. Yeah, yeah. And I say that that is, you know, like Hillary blames Bernie yeah. for having a singular What did she say? Singular issue. issue, issue. A singular yeah. issue. Yeah. And when you look at that singular issue, it's the only issue. <laughs> it's <a name>. yeah. <laughs> yeah? Well, I agree with uh, Matthew Fox that the, the singular cause, which, you know, resonates. Outward, causing other causes is the ignorance of the fact that we are born with original grace, not original sin. Yeah. Original sin was a concept like everything else like that that was created to control the masses.
2: Yeah.
1: There's no evidence of it in any of the teachings. Thank you. Thank you for helping, uh, having me remember Matthew. We used to have a lot of fun together. Him and I, the Franciscans. (laughs)
2: Do you know where he is
1: now? No, I don't. that has been years. Last time was in 1989. Any other questions? When I trust that I am made of the stuff of love, And when I trust, and you don't even need to trust the second part. When you do the work of Zen spirituality, which includes and involves this meditative inquiry into the nature of my suffering. When you really do the work of inquiring into the cause of your suffering, you will find, as I suggested a few moments ago, that I suffer when I act in ways that tend to separate me from other, when I act you know, in unkind ways, when I'm malicious, when I'm vindictive, when I'm jealous, when I'm envying, <clears throat> greed is another way in which, uh, again, we tend to feel separated from. Because greed is an obsession with something I perceive to be apart from me and want, if you will, Uh, under the guise of, if I had it, I would be more, if I had it, I would be better. Imagine what your life would be, and I want you to do this. Imagine what your life would look like if you came from a place, whether you felt it or not, whether you felt that way tomorrow or not, that your life was already perfect and complete, that you lacked nothing, that your relationships were already perfect and complete that they lacked nothing, except maybe your participation in them, you know what I'm saying? Because again, when I am not aware of my basic goodness, when I am not operating from a place of Buddha nature, I'm always outside my relationships looking in. And I'm always judging them, qualifying them, testing them, and so forth. So, you know, for those of you who've, talked a lot about in your spiritual journey being present to the moment you can start right there one of the ways to be present in the moment one of the way if not the the way to being present in any moment is to not be talking about it is to not be always qualifying it when I'm qualifying whatever's going on in the moment the circumstances and situations for myself I'm not present to it I'm standing over here observing it and you know, projecting my qualification or disqualification on the moment. When we are really present to the moment, when we are really present to our life, there's just the process of being present, just the process of living your life, just living your life. A dear friend of mine who was a powerful teacher many years ago used to say, there's nothing you really have to do. If you just go home tonight and just live the life you've got, things will change. Try that. If you just live the life you have, things will change, he would say. Try that. Be the person you say you are in the life you have. Try that and see what happens. Because much of our dissatisfaction with our lives is that we're not present to our lives. We're always operating again from a place whereby we feel we need to protect ourselves from the very lives we've created. Think of that. You need to protect yourself from what you created. Think of that. How stupid that is, So if we can learn to trust our basic goodness, trust that we are made up of the stuff of love and kindness and compassion and joy and all of the other virtues, that we tend to live our lives striving to be more of, and just simply be that in every moment, and bring that to every moment, we can learn to be fully present to our life, and only when we are fully present to our life, because when we're standing off the side, qualifying it, testing it, and judging it, we don't even see it. What we're qualifying, what we're testing and judging is an illusion. It's an illusion and you've had those moments where you've experienced what i just said when you were willing to drop your opinion drop your expectation and listen to the other person you know uh Maisie and i were talking a little bit about this earlier too uh, the job of the teacher is to listen to really listen and and it's interesting and in everything i'm Learning about being a parent to a six-year-old, uh, one of my conscious practices, my mindful practice, is to not just listen to my daughter's words when she's having a tantrum, but listen to her. And one of the most enlightening um, things I've read about, you know, working with children when they're when they're in their tantrums, uh, is that that stuff we get upset with them about, you know, like when they're screaming and yelling at us and saying things, this might be helpful to you because it was certainly uh, an eye-opener for me, is that in those moments, what you are witnessing is that at that age, they don't know what to do with the feelings that they're feeling, okay? And what you're seeing often and judging as being disrespectful or not being a good kid, (laughs) is really just a frightened child that doesn't know any other way of telling you they're afraid. And when you do that long enough as a child, you, you also do that as an adult, you see, you see. You know, those moments when we say what we don't mean, those moments when we do what we don't mean. So it is vital when we talk about sustainable relationships, it is vital that we understand that, for example, in all relationships, whether it's a parent with a six-year-old, or a spouse with the fellow spouse, you know, as adults, that we understand that the singular key to sustainable relationship is skillful and effective communication. And skillful and effective communication is a function of what? Listening. Listening. And learning to not just listen to words, but to listen to the person, to listen to them, if you will. So again, this all is possible only when I'm coming from a place of basic goodness, because from a place of basic goodness, Crossbridge-Dales National Young Buddhas' words apply with children and adults. When they tell you you will cry, just look at them and sigh, and know that they love you, you see. So when you're having that battle in your relationship with whoever, take a moment to stop. Remember I told you about the space. They say something, they do something, and it hits, you see. And instead of (laughs) reacting from the hip, the practice of mindfulness by using the breath is to pause for a moment And perhaps after training for a period of time, you will see what I have been able to see. And that is when you train at this regularly, you get to a place where that pause, even though it's a brief space, a very small space, feels like eternity. And you take that breath and you just remind yourself, just like I do with my daughter, for example, when she's having a fit. I think of the little girl I love. I don't think of the little girl who's behaving that way. And then I react. And then I react. If we can think of the person, you know, shooting the arrow at us as the one we love, despite the fact that they are shooting the arrow, perhaps our reaction will be much more effective and and so forth. But if not, if they still keep shooting arrows, then we get a duck, you know. (laughs) But we don't shoot back. Because to shoot back makes you them in that moment. You know, Jesus says to conquer the Romans, make you no different than they. You know, the Buddha said, getting angry and vindictive at persons who hurt you is like picking up hot burning coals out of a fire and tossing it at them and missing every time. You see, that's how stupid that is. Can I see. You here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, hi. But you decide not to. Okay. Um, so what I was going to say is
0: that deep down inside I feel compassion and kind and good and I trust myself. But I don't trust other people having those same feelings about themselves. And therein lies the problem.
1: No, the problem doesn't lie in that. The problem is we need to, again, give up the notion that we have to trust other people. What does Tom Hanks say to Gary Powers? It doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter whether they're trustworthy or not. Your satisfaction, Ellen, lies in your trustworthiness, period. It matters when someone's abusive and unkind. When someone's abusive and unkind, you leave the relationship okay? But to become abusive and unkind towards them, because we think that that's the only reaction in that situation makes you that. Okay? See, we need to stop loving for a reason. We need to stop trusting for a reason, because we will never get to a place of complete trust if. Our trust is a function of having a reason to trust. The trust of the Buddha is no matter what others do, I will always respond with loving kindness and compassion. But
0: part of sometimes you react because you're hardwired to react. And this is about
1: you're not not hardwired. This is your
0: hardwired. No, this is your
1: conditional wiring. This is your conditional wiring you're talking about. We need to see this. Yes, there's a primordial part of us, but we are more than our primordial existence. We've evolved from there. Remember, we no longer live in caves.
0: You
1: hope so. Well, we we have, we have. Even though we don't act that way, even though we don't act that way, doesn't mean we haven't evolved. We have evolved. The universe evolves collectively. It doesn't evolve individually.
0: Some well, people have not re- resolved
1: okay <laughs> and that and that is the issue mm-hmm. that point of view is the issue
0: in the nursery there are children that cry there are children that don't cry you can see personalities immediately and, the, some and are bad seeds and in the,
1: nur- and in the nursery in the nursery and in the nursery when one child cries <laughs> all the children cry empathetically for that child Either, and this is this is where this is the key issue right here. It's a matter of where you want to come from. If I, if we want to come from this place, the destination has already been predetermined. No matter what, we're com- no matter where we're coming from. So if I want to see the world as lost, then the world is lost, I
2: agree.
1: Okay, but if I want to see the world hopefully then there's hope for the world. And that's the difference.
0: See, as a child, I think we're more trusting and we're, more, we don't, we're, we're not cynical because we haven't experienced some of these people who haven't evolved.
1: Every single person in this room, including the one talking to you now, has been injured by someone. Mm-hmm. The very fact that one person's response to similar injuries can be different than another person's response means that we have an option. We have an option. And that's what I'm saying, when we ground ourselves, when we root ourselves in any point of view, whether it's my point of view or your point of view, that point of view determines the results. That point of view determines the results. For centuries, for centuries, we believed this about women, we believed this about colored people, and the results was, were, were in harmony with those beliefs. Until we changed our beliefs about it, and, and courageously moved into unknown territory with trust, did we learn differently. And that's where all real transformation begins. There are some, and you've heard me say this, there are some people in my life that I must muster up all of the love and compassion in the universe for that everything inside me says no way and yet I must and yet I do I have to otherwise I am condemned to a place of suffering because of my position on that that's what I'm saying there's no denial here that there are bad people doing bad things some of them have done them to me okay no denial of that but in the end my contentment, my satisfaction, my fulfillment is not a function of who they choose to be, but a function of who I choose to be. I
2: agree with you, but it takes a lot of discipline. And it does. To get to that. And thank
1: you for that, because that's my argument with a culture of spirituality today that suggests it's a lot easier than that. Okay. And it isn't. Yeah. That's why you hear me constantly say, you must Practice every day, isn't it? Isn't that what I always say? Mm-hmm. Because it is that difficult. It's very difficult. Okay? Thank you.
0: So I didn't want to have a sentimental attitude toward easy.
1: No, you should never. Sen- <laughs> if you want to find another cause for suffering, it's sentimental. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a, there was a uh, philosopher who once wrote that the two greatest contributions of the 20th century was gunpowder and romantic love. (laughs) Take that to the (laughs) poet.
2: Thank
1: you, Ellen. You see, we either believe, you know, part of trusting ourselves is that we trust that our love is powerful enough. We either choose to trust that or we don't. There is no evidence, I can't sit here and say to you, look, if you trust yourself, this is what will happen. I trusted myself and continue to choose to trust myself in acting that way and I can only tell you that I'm here before you after 41 years still teaching. you know, And it hasn't been an easy road and still isn't an easy road. So it's always about, again, back to Tom Hanks' you know, character, it doesn't matter, you know who you are. You know what you did. And that's really where it comes from. If there's anything I've been talking more about than anything else, it, it is the fact that we are, and if you read, uh, I never remember whether it was in the newsletter that comes out from here or in transfer, in the magazine Natural Awakenings, one of the articles. I wrote about this, that we are a culture obsessed with the destination we tend to think that the destination is everything. The destination is nothing, because the destination is predetermined from the place you launch from. We need to redirect our attention from the destination to where we're coming from. The quintessential question of life is not what are the results, not where I am going to be someday, but where I am now, and who I choose to be now. So, for example, if we were to turn off all the lights in this room where it was pitch dark, and suddenly there was a reason to get out of the room as quickly as possible, your life depended on it, I guarantee you that the person who knows where they're sitting in this room at that moment will get out a lot easier than the one who doesn't. It is our point of view, the Buddha said in the Eightfold Noble Path, that literally determines everything. And that is why it is the first of his prescription for cessation from suffering. He said, you need the right point of view. He says, resolve your point of view and all of the other remaining seven steps of that prescription fall into place. It all begins and ends with who I say I am going to be in my life and who and what I am bringing to every moment, no matter what the other person does. In fact, my definition of freedom, and you've heard me talk about this in the past, we have a very distorted, like so many other things, definition of freedom in this country. When we talk about freedom as Americans, we talk about the right to do whatever I want, no matter the consequences. But that is not the definition of freedom. When you take a look at the dictionary's definition of freedom, and you take a look at it aside of the Buddha's teachings on freedom and Christ's teachings on freedom and the Torah's teachings on freedom, freedom is a function of integrity. It's a function of being true to your conviction no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation. So, for example, from the spiritual point of view, freedom is the choice to love no matter what the other person does. And every single teacher from the prophets, To Christ, from Buddha, uh, you know, to uh, Krishna, all of them taught, excuse me, freedom in the same way. That it's a function of being true to who you say you are and bringing that basic goodness in yourself to every moment, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation. Most of us, again, our freedom is conditional, and because it is conditional. We talk about feeling free today and not so free tomorrow. When we can be free in any circumstance or any situation, when we realize that our contentment is not a function of the circumstances or situations we find ourselves in, but a function of who we are being in those circumstances and in those situations. That is why we have a political environment today. And I read this on one of the social medias a gentleman was holding a sign and it said, if you have nothing to believe in, then you'll believe anything anyone tells you. You see? When you don't know who you are, then you are able to be led astray from anyone. And that is why, again, back to when uh, we were talking about original grace, yes, that is the singular issue. Until I know my basic goodness and am operating from that place, nothing is ever going to change for me personally, or for the world. Any questions?
0: Hi. Hi. Um, Going back to what you were saying about your daughter when she had the temper tantrum, and you said, listen,
1: listen to her, and listen? Listen to her and listen to her, not just her words and her behavior.
0: So when you say, listen to her, you're saying,
2: can you say that in another way? Yeah.
1: Again, we judge ourselves and others, often by uh, the circumstance and situation. Circumstances and situations are conditional. So just like as an adult, I will say things to you I really don't mean occasionally. When I say things I really don't mean, the person saying that is not me. There is something conditional that has caused me to say that. So in every moment, for me at least, what I practice, what I train in doing, because as a parent, you know, as Ellen says, it's not easy. Whether we're talking about parenting or we're talking about spirituality, it's not easy. So what I train in doing is always remembering that child the day I saw her come into the world. Always remembering that joy and excitement that I had for that child. So when she's having the temper tantrum, I'm not looking at a bad kid, I'm looking at that child. And then coming from that place, I'm always coming from the same place. What can I do to benefit her, to help her here? See, so I'm always, for example, I'm always telling Katie things like, this is how you learn. Mm -hmm. It's okay, this is how you learn. And this is how daddy has to teach you in order to learn. Rather than bad, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad, okay? These are the lessons of life. So it's always about for me, seeing the child that I love, in every circumstance and situation, no matter her behavior. Okay? Now that doesn't mean there aren't rules. There are rules. And that doesn't mean there aren't consequences. There are consequences. But there's a way of you know, presenting consequences as a means to teaching her accountability and responsibility, and a way of using consequences to just be mad at her for saying those things and being that way. And that's the difference in parenting for me. The difference in parenting for me is that, as a parent, you don't get mad at a child that's only been around six years, okay? I mean, I know people 60 years old that haven't learned the lessons. We expect them to know in those moments, okay? So we want to, again, apply the necessary Mm -hmm. lesson in a compassionate way. And then we've got to have compassion for a six-year-old. I mean, because they don't even know what these feelings are about that's going on in them in that moment. And you've got to have compassion for someone like that. So, uh, I don't is that helpful? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really about taking a breath, it really is. Before reacting, stepping back and reminding yourself what your intention is here. And as a parent, I believe again what uh, Cross, Nash and Young said. You know, we absolutely love our kids. So if that's true, and I believe that's true, I don't think that ever changes, no matter what happens. Um, act accordingly in every situation. Okay. And when you mess up, <coughs> give yourself a break and them too, because you're gonna. <coughs> Even I mess
2: up. Thank you. Uh, you. um, In what you were just saying, for me, for a six-year-old that you love, although difficult at times, that's a much easier thing than somebody who confronts you, even a friend, with a belief system that's so antithetical to what you think you know.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. And so in those moments, you know, and that's a range of people who can confront you with all kinds of things. In those moments, coming from that compassionate Buddha nature, you know, the difficulty I find is to, that breath, like to calm that emotional stuff, like really... So I can see that human being as as somebody with just a difference of opinion, yeah. instead of a sort of antagonistic in some yeah. way. But his opinion or her opinion affects my I don't even know survival in some yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. It's tricky. Yeah, it
1: yeah. I think of two things as you' as you're sharing that. One with the recent passing of Justice Scalia. I was shocked, like many people were, of how Justice Ruth Ginsburg spoke about it. Yes. They were absolutely (laughs) oppositional and yet they were best buddies. And
2: when he was on Charlie Rose, Justice
1: Scalia. Charlie. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, so there was a lot of talk. Uh, by the pundits about how they were able to maintain what we're talking about tonight Mm -hmm. despite their differences. And that's what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And as I said earlier in sharing with Ellen, if that can go on between two absolutely oppositional justices on the Supreme Court, think about it. And the other Mm -hmm. thing that came up for me was growing up with the uh, mini-series Kung Fu. Anybody remember the with uh, David Carradine? Carradine. Okay, and I was always impressed. I was always impressed by the fact that uh, whenever he was in a bar, you know, and they would you know take him on, uh, how he would very he would you know just use his uh, Kung Fu and throw them across the room, (laughs) and there was no malice in his behavior. He he would throw them across the room, and he would say, "Oh, he doesn't know how to fall." <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so I, I mentioned carradine for this reason. I think it just hit me that perhaps we're thinking of a kind of very mushy sweetheartedness all the time when we think of being compassionate and loving kind. So, again, back to parenting. I mean, don't misunderstand me. I need to be stern with my daughter at time. An absolute. There is no negotiation here. This is the way it is. I get, that I often say, that's what I get for being a parent. That's one of the benefits that comes along, you know, with the job. Uh, so it's not like we're mushy and all forgiving. It's it's we're not returning the malice towards a person like you're, you know, using as an example, and we're not, you know, vindictive. That you know, even even about when you know you're right, it's one thing to know you're right, it's another thing having to be right, Mm -hmm. okay? So one of the examples I often use is that, you know, someone asked me many years ago, what's it like when you go home for dinner at your mother's? And people were surprised to know that I never talk about spirituality at my house, my father's house.
2: Never
1: Never talk about this at my father's house. Never. It Never. wasn't until he just recently almost died that we had our first talk about Buddha nature <laughs> and that was his request know what have you but I when I would go home I was wise enough to know a prophet is never accepted in his own land <laughs> yeah. so is uh, a difference between knowing you're right and having to be right is the point there and you know if uh, those of you who know me long enough and know my father, we are at oppositional ends of politically. So even the political discussions were minimized and what have you for that purpose. Because I know I'm right politically. Just don't need to be right. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was going to say. The two justices
2: were relating to each other on another level. Not, on a,
0: not um, as justices, but as two human beings. Yeah. So I think if you disagree, you know, you have friends that think differently than you do, but if there's something that you have in common, you remain friends in spite of differences. So they're relating to each other's humanness, not, in, no. not to one another's opinions.
1: Or, as I would say, we're relating to each other's basic goodness. Okay. We see each other okay. as fellow human beings, therefore we see exactly. each other as possessing basic goodness, and that's what we're relating to whether we're relating as a parent to a child, we see our children as we originally saw them, you know, at their basic goodness. We see our spouse, we see our friend. The thing about what makes friendship works is that in friendship, you don't have to be right in the, in the relationship, you know mm-hmm. saying? And that's what I'm saying, It's there's a difference, and most of us can't make the distinction between, and this is why problems rise in relationships, Because we don't make the distinction between knowing we're right and having to be right. Mm -hmm. Okay? You know, there were numerous Mm -hmm. occasions, again, I use my father and my relationship as an example because of his strong personality. uh, Numerous occasions where, you know, I surrendered to his opinion but -hmm. knew I was right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Roshi, how do you put your idea of showing compassion to the other person in a situation where a Jew in Nazi Germany is being led to the gas chamber, or a black in the South is being led to the whipping post. Yeah. How can they have compassion to the people that are doing it to them? There's a wonderful story, a true story also, uh, about uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama on one occasion greeting Tibetan monks who escaped uh, the prisons of China, okay? And where they found themselves for a decade or more being tortured regularly by the prison guard. And there's a story about this one monk who when he was having an audience with the Dalai Lama uh, began weeping. And he, he engaged him about what that was about for him and he said the thing that he was most afraid of was losing compassion for the guard, because he knew that if he lost compassion for the guard, he would lose himself, you see? He would lose himself. So again, I think the problem comes with this sentimental notion of compassion. Compassion isn't where I necessarily love the people taking me to the gas chamber. It's not where I love my slave owner. It's where I choose, again, that, you know, Gandhi said when he was asked to define his revolution, he said, every time the British strike me with a stick, I will not strike them back, okay? That was a definition, for me at least, of compassion. Compassion is, again, I choosing not to respond with the same malice, the same evil, that I am being treated with—that's that's a form of compassion. So I think so so often we get stuck on this matter of compassion uh, because we are coming from a very sentimental Hollywood view of it. You know, uh, when people talk about you know Jesus on the cross, you know he 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 went to the cross. I tell people it wasn't like he was forced to go and he went there kicking and screaming. So. It, there's an example of what I mean of a strong heart, a strong spirit, if you will. So I think, again, how do I react? Again, I don't curse the God. I don't you know, sit around thinking about how I hope he is suffering and his family suffers. Because, again, I go back to the teaching to conquer the Romans, make you no different than they. Now, if, if you're walking me to the chamber, and there's a gun for me to pick up, I may very well use it, okay? But that's called survival, not malice. And nowhere in Buddhist teachings does it suggest not to protect yourself. But it vehemently opposes malicious harm. So for example, just like in the Torah, which I've referred to last night on several occasions, it's not thou shalt not kill, it's thou shalt not murder. The original translation, the word murder, and in a court of law, there's a difference between killing and murdering someone. To murder someone is to bring malice towards your action. Likewise, in the Buddhist precept, precept of I vow not to take up the way of killing. It's the original translation is the same. I vow not to take up the way of murder. You know, of, of intentionally with malice harming another life. So that's that's the <coughs> distinction I make. You know so my prayer like the tibetan monk is that may I not become like my captives. That's compassion. May I not become like them. That would be my definition of compassion in those cases. But if the opportunity presents myself to liberate me or anyone else I will take it. Cuz that survives.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know when Mao Zedong invaded China, there were monks that took up arms. And there were monks who chose not to take up arms. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama did not rule this way or that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? You know, uh, let me just say one more thing. I think that, again, part of the effort to realize what we're talking about tonight is that we need to stop thinking so much about it and trust it. I'm asking you to trust that at the core of your very being, as Ellen said in her own words, at the very depth, I am loving, kind, I am compassionate. We need to focus on trusting that more and realizing that the mind that has been conditioned otherwise is certainly not going to satisfy reasons for being that way. You know, Einstein said, the mind which created the problem will be insufficient for creating the solution. (laughs) So that's why I say we need to come from here rather than here on what we're talking about tonight.
0: Um, Marisha, I remember reading something recently on
2: social media somewhere where you posted about idiot compassion. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Would that be, would that kick in at the point where your survival You need to take up arms against your enemy for your survival that, that could very well be
1: an extreme example and a more practical that you and I would face every day is uh, again you know giving money to someone you know that's going to use it to harm themselves maybe a drug addict or an alcoholic okay um, that is a form of idiot compassion also and we're, and are we're to avoid that the Buddhist mm-hmm. teaching, the Buddha talked about idiot compassion. You know that. You know if we're going to commit compassionate acts, let's make sure that our actions really, you know, uh, nurture and, and and rather than perpetuate the harm. So again, just randomly giving money to someone who we know will probably run out and buy drugs or who will, you know, you know, do something else with it that's harmful. Uh, that's what we're. That's a form of idiot compassion. Or trusting someone back to, you know, again, Ellen's example, trusting someone with an abusive nature over and over again, that's idiot compassion. Okay? So it's not about denial. You know, that's the other thing about true compassion, it's not about denial. It's not like where you've got this character, whether it be the extreme that Arnold pointed out, a guard in Auschwitz, you know, and you try to say, well, you know, maybe tomorrow he'll be loving. No. <laughs> no, he's not. No, he's not going to be loving. Uh, or, you know, a spouse or a friend or, you know, someone else with that. Our compassion must be based on wisdom, not an idealistic approach. Any other questions? So why don't we take five minutes, give you a break, go to the bathroom, come on back in, and then I would like to do some meditation processes of bodhicitta to help you uh, work this out when you go home tonight. We wandered into a corner of the Central Park Zoo and there, despite the dozens of tourists pointing and tapping the glass, two monkeys were squatting on a perch of stone. To our surprise, they were both in deep sleep, their dark heads bowed to each other, their small frames limp. What was amazing was was that their small, delicate hands were touching, their monkey fingers leaning into each other. It was clear that it was this small, sustained touch that allowed them to sleep. As long as they were touching, they could let go. I envied their trust and simplicity. There was none of the human pretense at independence. They clearly needed each other to experience peace. One stirred, but didn't wake, and the other, in sleep, kept their fingers touching. How deeply rewarding the life of touch. Each was drifting inwardly, dreaming whatever monkeys dream. They looked like ancient travelers praying inside a place of rest made possible because they dared to stay connected. It was one of the most tender and humbling moments I have ever seen. Two aging monkeys waving, weaving fingertips as if their touch alone kept them from oblivion. I pray for the courage to be as simple in asking for what I need to be. So, regular connection with provides the sustenance we so often find absent in our lives. Whether we're talking about our spiritual practice, whether we're talking about our sense of hope for ourselves and the world, all of that is a function, including beginning to learn how to live our lives from a place of basic goodness, a function of regular contact, regular reconnection with the source, which is the message of the story I just shared with you. Each and every day, when we take the time to become perfectly still, when you combine these two stories, and you remember how Master Ching again described how he prepares himself to create such a magnificent creation such as the horse. He talks about how he takes the time to, again, disconnect from the noise of the world, disconnect from the conceptual stories of the mind, disconnect from the beliefs and the expectations and the reasoning and all the rest, and just simply become quiet in a very trusting way like the story of the two monkeys, who all that was necessary for them to sustain their perch was this connection with each other, which is a metaphor or symbolism, again, of our connection with our basic goodness. Every day of our life, we need to visit that. That is to say, we need to enter into the meditative process or contemplative process of reconnecting with that source. So what I would like to do right now is to just take you through a simple meditation, one that you can apply, one that involves a kind of contemplative approach, that is to say one that you're going to need to use this cognitive part of the mind in order to really just set it up for it to happen. But again, like all other usages of meditation as a means toward this works, again, only if you apply it daily. And I'm going to you know, give it to you the way I gave it to the, to the women last night. It's not as important that you take a posture, whether it be on a cushion, as it is important that you do this in an environment and in an approach that you feel most comfortable, you feel most uh, retreative, if you will, in, in, that, in that manner. So whether it's your favorite chair at home, whether it's with your favorite music playing in the background, whatever works for you, uh, I support you doing it that way. What is important is you do it, whatever that way is, the same way every day for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So if you're sitting in a chair, put both feet on the, on the floor, try not to have your feet crossed so that you can actually feel the floor in the um, soles of both of your feet, where you are feeling the earth supporting you. And close your eyes and just allow yourself to hear my voice and follow my instructions. So for a moment, withdraw your thinking about everything and anything to thinking about how your body feels right now. And if you can draw your awareness down to the soles of your feet. And just notice how that feels. And if you're on a cushion, just notice how it feels, again, connected to the earth, supporting you in that posture. Try to bring your attention to how, again, your connection, physical as it may seem, to the earth, is supporting you to maintain your perch in this moment. And now bring your attention just as it is to your breathing. Do not try to manipulate it. Do not try to make it deeper or shorter. Just become aware of your breath. And in becoming aware of your breath, become aware of the sound of my voice and other sounds in the room. Become aware of the texture or how your skin feels in this moment. The taste on your palate. The overall sense in your body, this very moment. And take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. Literally allow each exhalation to be a kind of release, a kind of just letting go, where you find yourself just perched in your seat, trusting that the earth will support you. Take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. Just simply continue to hear the sounds, smell the aromas, taste the flavor of your palate, feel the texture and sensation on your skin. just the overall experience in your body. And take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. If you continue to feel any kind of like slightest in stress or tension anywhere in your body, All you need to do is continue to breathe that way so that your inhalation is a kind of drawing all of that nearer to yourself and then with the exhale, release it all. There's nothing else you need to do here except to just follow instructions. You don't need to buy it. You don't need to agree with it. You don't even need to believe it. You need to just be it right now and simply inhale and say to yourself, I am wonderful. Exhale. inhale i am beautiful exhale inhale i am capable exhale inhale I am lovable. Exhale. Bring to mind someone or several someones, male or female. I say that because if it's a woman you think about, you may want to say with your next inhale, she is wonderful. Exhale. He is beautiful. Exhale. Inhale. He is capable. Exhale, inhale. She is lovable. Exhale, inhale, he is loved. Exhale and relax. Just continue to breathe slowly and deeply while just Allowing yourself to experience those affirmations of your true nature. Perhaps you smiled at one point. Stay with the smile. Whatever your experience was, just embrace it with each inhalation and release it with each exhalation. And perhaps you need a little more Affirmation, you're welcome to Mm -hmm. repeat the cycle of the mantras that I gave you, until finally you are just resting and relaxing, trusting, with no other reason except to trust. Your basic goodness is wondrous Your basic goodness is beautiful. Your basic goodness is capable. You are lovable. You are loved. Take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale, relax, let go, open your eyes. From the time my uh, daughter was able to speak and think in words and language i gave her the four of those mantras i am wonderful i am beautiful i am capable and i am loved and when she is home with her father there's not a night before she goes to bed that she doesn't recite them and uh, she's so much like me <laughs> and vice versa so It is vital that you take time to retreat into that awareness, which that process will help you maintain, even if it is just for a few moments. And think of it this way. Often I have said to one or more of my students, when you leave this monastery and go into the world, there will be those who will forget who you are. I will never forget who you are. So perhaps you can re-translate that. And that is every day when you take this time to visit with yourself and to see these facts about yourself in this meditation, that's exactly what you're doing. At the end of the day, perhaps you spent a day in opposition with everything and everyone. And you come home at night and you remember that every time you leave and go into the world, there will be people who will forget who you are. But don't you forget who you are. And so this is why this meditation is a vital practice that you can begin to work with. So on the first Saturday of next month, I hope to uh, present a one-day seminar on this very matter we've been touching upon tonight. And it is titled, The Practice of Living Authentically. We will take the day through various different processes and presentations to explore why we are so afraid to be who we truly are in the world. We will take a look at the power of the narrative in our life that we learned very young about ourselves and how that narrative has followed us through life, and how we can rewrite that narrative. We will take a look at the whole matter of how fear operates, literally, the anatomy of fear in the mind and in the body, and how we can transform that. So that is, I believe, the first Saturday in March, am I correct? Yes, Roshan. And you need to register for that today. Go home tonight, turn on your computer, go to the website and register for that program Don't think about whether you're going to. Don't wait to see if you're going to be invited to a party that day. Go home, register, and join me here for a day of liberation and a day of renewal (coughs) as we move from living lives of imposters to living lives of authenticity. So uh, that's the first Saturday in March. Tomorrow morning, you're welcome to come back and be very quiet with me in, the, in this Dharma Hall for a couple hours for our Sunday morning program. And again, in March, the first Wednesday of each month, uh, I've launched a course in spirituality. What does it mean to be spiritual? And we will begin to take a look at the Eastern icon of the spiritual warrior. Uh, you know, what does it mean to truly live as a spiritual warrior in the world? And that'll begin on the first Wednesday of that month. The second Wednesday is our evening of contemplation and tea. If you haven't been to that, it's a very intimate experience of meditation and reflection on a reading that I offer you. And then we retire to the community room and share a bowl of tea over what often proves to be a very informative and enlightening discussion. And then if you want to learn meditation or uh, you know, with precision, refine your meditation practice. Join Emyo on the third Wednesday of each month uh, with his beginner's meditation and mindfulness class. Did I miss anything? No, Roshan. Okay. So, as always, it's been a privilege to be with you. Thank you for choosing to be with me tonight, and uh, take care of yourself. Pray for each other, Mm -hmm. including the Pope, poor guy, (laughs) which you get for wanting to tell the truth. (laughs) Yeah, you can pray for him too. is of the nature of impermanence. Gone. Gone. Forever gone. Opportunity is too often lost. Do not squander your life. I see a safe journey. I see you safe return. Good night. Good night.